Well, good morning or good afternoon to the men of the Wednesday morning Covenant Presbyterian Church Bible study and to the senior saints and to all covenanters in general. Uh, this is the Bible study for Hebrews. We are in chapter 13, and this is the Bible study for Wednesday, May the 6th, although I'm recording it on Thursday, May the 7th, and you probably are not going to get it off of the internet until uh, Friday, May the 8th, but uh, hopefully good things come to those who wait. Sorry I got behind schedule. Um, I have really enjoyed doing this study of Hebrews uh, through this academic year, and I have personally learned a lot, and I hope that I have grown spiritually from it, and I hope that you've learned uh, some new things about the letter to the Hebrews, and I hope it served to help you grow spiritually as well. So, let's go. We're into Hebrews chapter 13. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful that your word is truth and that you sanctify us in your word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds, open minds and open hearts to receive and to believe your word and ready and eager souls to obey it, to apply it to our lives. We do pray for the sanctifying grace of the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, minds, and souls so that we might serve you and that our life might be a sacrifice of praise to the glory of your grace through Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest at your right hand. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're into chapter 13, which says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Well, I think one of the first things that we need to note here is right here at the end of um, the letter, we get these this list of what might seem to be uh, miscellaneous in instructions and exhortations for Christian living. But there is a thread that runs uh, through this last chapter, a number of threads, and in some ways this last chapter recaps a lot of what has gone before in the preceding 12 chapters. The other thing is that throughout most of the preceding 12 chapters, we have been told who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Um, we have been given the indicative, the, the information the basis of our faith. Now, along the way, yes, there have been imperatives, there have been exhortations to run the race with endurance, to persevere, um, not to shrink back, etc. Those have been uh, intermittently thrown in the previous 12 chapters. But if you really think about it, the previous 12 chapters have been about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And so now it's really here at the end, in the light of that, 
that we get these practical instructions about Christian living. By practical instruction, I just mean the, the exhortations or the imperatives. Uh, for example, let brotherly love continue. Um, because we are to be known as those who love one another. Because that is who Jesus is and what he has taught us, how he has taught us to live as his disciples. Uh, you remember on the night of the Last Supper, as recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 13, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that means self-sacrificial love. And the word there, brotherly, that's key because, as you know, as has been taught us in the letter to the Hebrews, and as the Apostle Paul uh, speaks in the letter to, well, the Holy Spirit speaks through the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans, that we, in our union with Jesus Christ through faith in him, we are adopted as the sons of God, and that includes our uh, uh, female believers as well. We are, we are adopted as the children of God, but we have the status of sons. And so we have this language of brotherly love. And the Apostle Paul, in, in other letters, encourages us to uh, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, here's the thing. You see, it's, this is, this is um, brotherly love is love of the family. That's different from the love of neighbor. That's everyone. Love of neighbor is every human being is your neighbor. Uh, brotherly love is the family. And our witness to the world is the way in which we as Christians especially love one another. Yes, we're to show our love to the world. Yes, we're show love to the neighbor. But this is the thing. The church of Jesus Christ thrives when there is an environment and an atmosphere and real living out of love for one another as brothers. And, and the thing, and that includes sisters. And the thing is, you know what? You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's a familiar saying. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Well, guess what? We're family because God has chosen us. Right? Did God choose you to be his adopted child? Did God choose me to be his adopted child? Did God choose the other people? in your congregation, your other Christian friends, to be his adopted children? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Are there any Christian brothers or sisters who sometimes get on your nerves, who sometimes rub you the wrong way? You might not choose them as friends. We can be honest about that, can't we? You might not choose all of your Christian brothers and sisters to be your closest personal friends, but God has chosen them to be your brothers and sisters. And so we're committed. It's an obligation that we love one another in the body of Christ, in the household of God. Now, the circle widens. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Well, that, of course, is a reference to uh, Genesis 18. Uh, and when, when uh, the, the angels, one of, actually it was uh, the, the three men, and uh, one of them was uh, the, the Lord, and, uh, the, and the angels had appeared to Lot. It's not as though this is a frequent occurrence. Uh, for us, and I'm not suggesting that that would be a frequent occurrence for us, that we would be entertaining angels unawares, but 
Hospitality is the point. Uh, to show hospitality. And when it says to strangers, really what this verse is addressing is the fact that in the first century, there were itinerant preachers of the gospel who traveled from town to town preaching the gospel in the early stages of the early church. And you didn't want and they didn't want, you didn't want them, and they didn't want to spend the night in some hostel um, or out on the street. And so the encouragement, and this isn't the only place it occurs in the New Testament, but the encouragement was to welcome these itinerant preachers of the gospel and show hospitality to them and welcome them into your home. And um, so this is a this is applied mainly to uh, Christian, uh, fellow Christians that you might not know, fellow Christians that you might not know. Um, we might have a little bit of a hesitation these days to, to welcome just anybody into our home and show hospitality to an absolute stranger. Of course, I, we can all understand that. But if, if someone comes with good recommendation, uh, good papers, so to speak, and... Um, and maybe, a, it, it, you know, really the practical application, the way it works itself out in, um, for the most part, I think in our context, in our situation, you have a guest minister, a guest preacher, you have a missionary that's coming to your church. This happens at Covenant, and I'm saying, uh, speaking also to the, to the men who are not members of Covenant, but they're coming, they're coming to the church. And a minister calls you up and says, hey, we've, we've got this missionary couple. They're on furlough. They're passing through. You know, they serve the Lord in Pakistan or wherever. And uh, we're just wondering if, if, if you've got a room for them in your house for a couple of nights. Well, you know, that, that's it. You show hospitality to these people. Yeah, they may, you don't know them, etc. But gracious hospitality even to strangers. And in that way, you are honoring the Lord. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, that is, showing empathy, as those who are mistreated, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body, which means it could happen to you as well. Just remember that. Again, first century context in the letter to the Hebrews, this has not to do with criminals who have been incarcerated. This, this passage has to do with Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. So let me just say, um, there are Christians all over the world who are imprisoned for their faith, and we ought to remember them at least in our prayers. And uh, perhaps you are in touch with some organizations that uh, support and defend Christians who are persecuted uh, in the world today in, in imprisonment. Now, having said that, there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with Christian outreach to incarcerated criminals. I mean, that's a wonderful ministry. Chuck Colson established uh, the Prison Fellowship. Some of you may be involved in chaplaincy uh, in our local uh, uh, prison system, or you may know those who are, and that's very good. It's a very good work of, of the Lord. Um, I'm just making the point that in the first century context in the letter to the Hebrews, this, this verse has particularly to do with those Christians who have been, who were imprisoned uh, due to persecution. Let the marriage bed be held, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, the, the passage began in verse 1 with the, the, the command for us to let brotherly love continue and to show that love to uh, other Christians who may need our hospitality and to show that love with those who are imprisoned for their faith or those who are believers and who may now be in prison. And it continues. This love to be shown is to be shown in the context of our families. 
Um, and in the first century world, in the Greco-Roman world, um, sexual immorality was rife, adultery, promiscuity, homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality, etc. So Christians in the first century, let's, let's get this. Christians in the first century were called to be known. Their, their witness, their public witness, was that they love one another like family. They care for one another like family. They're willing to open their homes even to other Christians that they don't know who are strangers to them. They, they even extended their love perhaps in a uh, self, uh, making themselves vulnerable by um, trying to support and help fellow Christians who are imprisoned. They love one another. This is what they're doing. They're reaching out. And you know what else they're known for? They're known for marital fidelity. Marital fidelity in a world full of sexual immorality. Does this sound familiar? Could this possibly be relevant for our day? Do I need to preach this sermon? And not only does it have to do with marital fidelity and sexual purity outside of marriage, it also has to do with our life being free from the love of money. And of course, you will uh, find a reference to the love of money in uh, 1 Timothy 6, uh, verses 8 through 10. Let me just turn back there and read that to you. It's something that um, is always good to be reminded of. 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to uh, begin the reading uh, at verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now let me just make the point here that what I just read from 1 Timothy 6 and what we've read from Hebrews 13, which says, keep your life free from the love of money, that is not a condemnation of wealth in and of itself. Nor does it say that Christians ought not to be wealthy. If, we, if you go on further in 1 Timothy 6, the same book, the same chapter, just a few verses later, the Apostle Paul writes at 1 Timothy 6, 17, saying, as for the rich in this present age, as for the rich members of your church, he's writing to Timothy, as for the rich members of your church, charge them, teach them, command them, exhort them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that means eternal life, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, you have you have in Hebrews 13 and in 1 Timothy 6 this warning 
to be free from the love of money, which the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, uh, in verse 8, in verse 9, uh, refers to as a desire. The word there could be translated a lust. Uh, a, a, and, and then in you go down to verse 10 and you've got the word craving in the English Standard Version. So this is those who desire, that is those who lust after uh, riches, those who are craving for riches, those who have that kind of love of money are in deep trouble because that love of money is a root of all evil and all kinds of evils and it draws people away from the faith and gets them into a lot of trouble. Uh, The number one problem is that for those who desire to be rich, who have a craving for riches, enough is never enough. That's the deal. That's the main problem. You're caught in a trap, and you can't walk out. If you're lusting after money, if you're desiring, if you're constantly seeking to gain more and more and more. I imagine that uh, many of you all listening to this have have learned that lesson or or observed it. Uh, The best way to learn a lesson, of course, is to observe it in somebody else if it's a lesson you don't want to learn. But anyway, that enough is never enough. And and the the dissatisfaction and discontentment and... uh, ingratitude and bitterness and envy and covetousness and resentment that that breeds in the human soul. So that's why we're to be free. It's it's an attitude of ingratitude toward God if we're always lusting after money. But rather, you know, it's a matter of looking at what the Lord in his good pleasure has chosen to give to us. And I said, that's what I said. He is cho- what do we have that we have not received? What do we have that we have not received? It is the Lord who gives us the power to get wealth. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's the Lord who gives us the power. It's the Lord who gives us the intelligence. It's the Lord who, by His providence, sets us up in a certain place and time. It's the Lord who provides the education. It's the Lord who provides the breaks. It's the Lord who causes the ball to bounce in a particular way. Hey, hey! So we've got our our attitude almost always must be one of gratitude and generosity because the Lord has been generous, generous to us. And by the way, by the way, When you're reading the Bible and you come across words like rich and riches and wealth, nobody listening to this today can say, that doesn't apply to me. I I think I'm standing on really solid ground when I say, nobody listening to this today can read the Bible and read a word like rich, riches and wealth and say, oh, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not Bill Gates. Oh, that doesn't apply to me because, you know, I live in this little house. Oh, well, that doesn't apply to me because, you know, my car is 10 years old. It applies to you. It applies to you. We're rich. We are very, 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 each one of us is very, 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 very rich. In the light of world history, in the light of the billions of people on earth today, we are rich. We are rich. We may not be as rich as the person who lives across the street from us. We not, may not be as rich as the person who lives in a different neighborhood from us. But we're rich. Every single one of us is rich. We need to kind of, we just need to thank God for that. Thank God for it. Thank. God for it. And let us be content with what we have and let us be generous with what we have. And so keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. But everything in our American culture militates against that. 
everything. How many times are you bombarded every hour of every day with some kind of pop-up ad on your computer or on the television or on the radio about you got to go buy this. You got to go get this. You got to go get the new iPhone. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to get a better car. You got to turn blah, 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 blah. Goodness. The Bible says be content with what you have. The Apostle Paul, as I read from 1 Timothy, if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Now that's, that's a tough one, isn't it? That's tough for us Americans who live in the, in, the, in the wealthiest demographic of human history. And that's not a guilt statement. That's a thank God statement. Thank, thank the Lord. I'm very thankful that in God's providence, I was born in 1957, and I've, I have reaped the benefits of uh, the blessings of what America has experienced over the last 60 years. So it's not a guilt statement. It's a thank you statement. But how do you say, how do you say thank you? How do you say thank you? Well, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and following, charge them, your church members, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's so gracious. He's so magnanimous. He's so generous. He gives us all these good gifts, and he gives them to us to enjoy. And therefore, what should be our response? Verse 18, 1 Timothy 6, 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Use your money for good works. Be generous, ready to share. And even when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're investing in your eternal future. That's what Jesus said, and that's what the Apostle Paul says. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good fountain for a good foundation for the future. Well, I've spent a lot of time on these verses, but and I know that I'm speaking to a lot of very generous people. With, in a wide range, a very diverse range of uh, economic ability. Um, and the issue there is proportionality. It's not the amount per se. It's the proportionality of your generosity. And I know that I'm speaking uh, to people who are very generous and who are, who, who are indeed rich in good works. And I I commend you, not because I know any financial figures. I do not. I don't know any financial figures. But um, I, I just know that in the life of covenant, for example, we couldn't do the things that we do if it were not for the fact that everyone at every economic level gives generously out of the resources which God has provided for them. So you are to be highly commended. All right. God has given us his promise. This is the reason that we can be free from the love of money and content with what we have, because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's his promise. It comes, by the way, from Joshua 1, that great opening passage of the Lord's uh, word of encouragement to Joshua as he was about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you wherever you go. That promise still comes to us and is still valid for us as we live our lives in this wilderness on our way to the promised land, right? And God will provide, and he does provide, and we're on our way. And so we say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that's a, a very strong word of encouragement, particularly to people who were uh, at risk of losing their property or their livelihoods due to persecution. You put that back 
in the first century context, you see, and it's not just a nice calligraphied uh, verse that goes on your refrigerator or something like that, right? This, this is being said to people who were at risk of losing their homes and their livelihoods due to persecution for their faith. The promise of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And therefore we say with affirmation, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Are we ready to say that? Oh, may the Lord give us grace to believe what he says. Now, verses seven and following. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, thus far to verse 16. Well, so now the, the author or preacher to the Hebrews tells them to remember their leaders, those who have served this congregation or this gathering of Jewish Christians uh, prior to the writing of this letter, the leaders of, of the church, of Jewish Christians, uh, their preachers, their teachers. And the exhortation is to remember them and to remember who spoke to you the word of God. And that's the key. That's the key. Leaders of the church must speak the word of God. Not, not our own word, not our own human ideas, um, not the things that we speculate about or philosophize about, not anything that is based on any other source other than the word of God in Scripture. And in the first century, this, of course, would refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was proclaimed according to the scriptures of the Old Testament. It would also include the apostolic writings, which were already being circulated, the letters of Paul and, and the other letters. Uh, portions of the gospel, etc. This was the word of God, the preaching of the word. You know, as Paul with his colleagues went out on their missionary journeys and elsewhere, others were teaching and preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so this is, and now we have it all. We have not only the New Testament, we now have the corpus of the apostolic preaching and teaching recorded for us in the English language in the New Testament. What a treasure that we have, that we can open it up and read it and study it. This was the, the, the apostolic teaching of the church based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is, this is the reference here. Your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. And so church members always have the right and the obligation 
to check what the preacher, what the teacher says. Is that in accordance with the Word of God? Is that in accordance with the Word of God? Now look, I'm not asking for trouble, but accountability is a good thing. Accountability is the good thing. So if you ever hear anything from the pulpit or the teaching lectern of Covenant Presbyterian Church that doesn't sound right to you, then that's right. Elders, you need to hold your preachers accountable. Uh, members, you can ask your preachers. You can ask your elders. Now, what did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? What did he mean when he said everybody ought to eat a snow cone on Friday because that was something that God gave to him in a special revelation? I'm being facetious. No, 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 no. There is no more special revelation. There is no more special revelation for the church of Jesus Christ. We have it in the 66 books of the Bible. All right, you know that, you get that. I'm going to move on. But it's so important. My goodness, it's so important. Churches, denominations are crumbling, falling apart, going out of existence. Why? Because something other than the Word of God was being preached and taught. Okay, you know that too. But it's not just the preaching and the teaching. It's the, the way of life. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know, Paul wrote, in his letters, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now look, I, I would never say anything like that. I'm not worthy of that. And I always wondered about that. But you know what? There, I, I know folks. I know people. I know people who in whose lives I see the imitation of Jesus Christ. And no, not perfectly in this world, but I, I can see in their life the imitation of Jesus Christ. And you know, I can say I want to be like that person because that person is like Jesus. That's the key. I want to be like that person. The way that person handles himself or herself in this kind of situation, oh, I want to, I want to, I want to be like that person because that person is like Jesus. See, that's the idea there. And I wish I could do a better job of that for y'all in covenant, but um, I'm a work in progress, so may, may God give me more and more grace. But here's, here's what I really want you to see. Watch how verse 7 moves to verse 9. Now, I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 together. I want you to get this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Did you get that? You see, that verse, Hebrews 13, 8, what a great verse. What a great memory verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But it's more than an isolated one-off memory verse, okay? I mean, it's a good one. It's a good one to put on your refrigerator. But look at the context. It's all about the right teaching in the church. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. What's in the center of those two verses? What's the core? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Christ, Jesus Christ, who was proclaimed in the first century is the same today, 21st century. And he's going to be the same forever. And that's the reason that we must not waver from. We must not... Uh, attempt to modify or to alter the Word of God, which is Jesus Christ, and the Word of God, which is proclaimed in Jesus Christ, and the Word of God, which Jesus Christ has set forth in the apostolic teaching found in 
the New Testament. Remember your leaders who spoke you the word of God, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures. And don't be led astray by strange and diverse teachings. And brothers and sisters, somebody's always coming up with something new. Somebody's always coming up with something new and something exciting and something that's going to get everybody ginned up and worked up. The, the, the issue is, is it firmly rooted in the Scripture? Is it firmly rooted in Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is not going to change his mind about anything. He's not going to change his mind, his word, or his will about anything. He is the same yesterday and today, and forever. And therefore, only as we root ourselves in Jesus Christ, in His gospel, in His word, only then will we be safe and secure. So, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings of people who think they've had a new revelation from God about something or some, you know, new age spirituality, or some new psychological insight, or whatever. It's always something new. Somebody looks at some astrological event that takes place with the moon and the stars, and they make some prediction about something that's going to happen. You just don't have to worry about any of that. You just don't be distracted led away by diverse and strange teachings. Just ask yourself the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. That's obviously a reference to the, the first century context and the dietary laws of the Old Covenant, which were still practiced by the Jews of the first century who were still uh, practicing uh, Old Covenant Israelite faith. But, you know, it could be just anything. People just get hooked on, I don't know, little little tangents, little tangents, like they've, they've found some secret key to the Christian life or something. You know, if you start doing this, blah, 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 or pray this prayer so many times a day, blah, 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 blah. Be sure to pray this prayer in this way with the, I mean, all these little rules or tangents or little uh, gimmicky mantras or whatever it is. I mean, it's just like, no, 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 no. That's not the way to God. What's the way to God? Jesus, by his blood has made a new and living way into the most holy place. He's gone before us. He is the forerunner of our faith. He is there. He is the anchor of our hope. There, behind the curtain, in the most holy place. This is all of what we've learned from Hebrews thus far. He has shed His blood. He has offered up His own life. He is the great high priest. His priesthood is forever. He can save to the uttermost all those who come to God by faith in Him. And his priesthood endures forever. He's always the same. You can always go to him because he's the same one who shed his blood on the cross for your sins and his wounds, his blood pleads mercy before the throne of God's justice. That will never change. I mean, how great is that? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So don't get diverse. Don't let don't be carried off by some new and strange teaching. There's a saying which I kind of like, and it's this: if it's new, it's probably not true. All right. You get the point. Verse 10. We have an altar 
from which those who serve the tent, that's a reference to the temple in Jerusalem which is still standing at the time this was written, pre-A.D. 70, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the, the old covenant Jewish priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem, which was still standing at the time this was written, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. We have an altar. Well, what, what is that altar? What happens on an altar? An altar is a place where a sacrifice is offered. Be real careful about this one. Where's our altar? Our altar is the cross on Calvary. Who offered that sacrifice? Jesus Christ, our great high priest, offered himself for us. And he did so in obedience to his Father, who was the one who, we might say, ultimately offered up that sacrifice for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or as uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, verse 25. This, this is a good uh, memory verse. It's, it's not one that is popularly memorized, but you need to know Romans 3. And you, you need to, uh, to understand the logic of it here. And, and uh, we'll start at 3.23, which is a familiar uh, uh, memory verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God put forward His Son, Jesus Christ. God the Father gave His only begotten Son, so that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is our altar? The cross of Jesus Christ. We eat from that altar. That is, by faith. That is to say, to receive Jesus Christ is and that, of course, that is signified to us. That is, the, the, the efficacy of that is sealed to us. The reality of it is sealed to us when, by faith, uh, we eat the Lord's Supper, right? And we are, by faith, receiving the body and blood of Christ. That is, the efficacy, the saving power of His life and His death and his resurrection. We are receiving Christ into our lives, right? And the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper communicates that to us. It makes it tangible to us and visible to us and experiential to us in that tangible way. But it is all by faith. And it's really receiving Christ in the fullness of his life and in the fullness of the efficacy of his death for us and the power of his resurrection for us. That's the altar from which we eat the cross of Jesus Christ by faith. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places. Now, there again, you got to note the present tense of those verbs because that was still going on in Jerusalem, in the temple, when this was written. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, you could look at Exodus 29, 14. You could look at Leviticus 4, 21. This, these are offerings of, for atonement of sin. And the people did not eat the bodies of these animals that were sacrificed. Those bodies were taken outside the camp, outside the Israelite camp, and then outside the gate of Jerusalem. And they were heaped up and they were burned. 
This is the point. The, the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places in the temple that was standing in Jerusalem at the time by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So, here's the connection. Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the walls of Jerusalem, Mount Calvary. Jesus, like those animals that were sacrificed for the atonement for sins, whose bodies were burned outside the camp, Jesus was offered up outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. All right, there it is. That's a hard saying. If we are going to benefit from the death of Christ, if we are going to benefit from the death of Christ, if we would have our sins atoned for by the death of Christ, if we would be reconciled to God by the death of Christ, then we must follow Him. We must go to Him. Go to Him in faith. Go to Him by faith. Go to Him outside the camp. Wow. Go to Him outside our establishment comfort zone. Go to Him outside of our place of comfort and security and our identity within the established social order. Wow. We have to leave that all behind. Go to Him, perhaps even, perhaps even outside of the fellowship of our own family. What a painful thing, a terrible thing. But not uncommon at all. And bear reproach. Bear the reproach he endured, the scoffing, the shame, the ridicule. If we would benefit from the death of Christ outside the camp, we must go outside the camp. That means go outside, leave behind, come away from the worldliness of this world, the pomp and circumstance of the worldliness of this world, the social security and social acceptance of the worldly in this world. It meant one thing for those Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians of the first century. They, they had to leave. They had to leave the Old Testament, Old Covenant Israelite system. They had to leave their family. They had to leave their community. Many of them, they had to leave their homes. And for them, it really was a break, a break with their world, the world of Judaism in the first century. For us, it's a little bit different sociologically. Sociologically, um, ethnically, psychologically, it, it, it's a little different. But the call of Christ is still the same call. Come out from among them. What does, what does light have to do with darkness? Come out from among them and be ye holy as I am holy. It's that call to holiness, to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That, that, that came up earlier, you know, in chapter 12. It's a hard, it's a hard thing. We're not people that like to swim upstream against, run against the grain. You've heard me over and over again, because this is a great theme in the whole letter to the Hebrews. You know, all of my life I've been pretty normal and, you know, so-called well-rounded and well-socialized and all that. Well, not so much anymore, <laughs> at least not among, not among some. You know, growing up like I did in North Monroe and 
you know, in the 70s when I was in high school, you know, popularity, I mean, that was the thing, right? You had to run with the popular crowd and social acceptability and all that stuff. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? If you would benefit from the death of Christ, remember, he shed his blood outside the camp. So, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. That's the call to us in 21st century America. And then he says, verse 14, we're coming to the close of this study. For here we have no lasting city. And that's, that's a wonderful echo of the story of Abraham who went out not knowing where he was going. Uh, there's an echo of that, you know, from, from early on uh, about those who, uh, if they were looking for a, uh, a city, they, they would have returned. Uh, back to their own land. But we have no lasting city. This, this isn't it. This isn't it. We're headed to the city that is to come, the city of God. And there again, that, that echoes what we have read in, in chapter 11 and chapter 12. We are a pilgrim people. We are on a journey. We're not going to be here forever. And for as long as we are here, we are to be here for the glory of God and for the increase of his kingdom and to and to bear witness to him and live upon the earth as his representatives upon the earth yes indeed this life on, in this world does matter but it it's it's not the eternal world it's not the eternal world and 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 when the time comes when we need to let some things go or if we have things taken away from us because of our witness for Christ if we lose some things in this world because of persecution, or if, if we don't get as far ahead in this world because we choose not to cheat and lie and undercut our neighbor, you know what? It's going to be okay. Because we've got an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for us in heaven. And we were never meant to have it all in this world. We were never meant to have it all in this world. And that's the reason that it's totally futile uh, to be lusting after money all the time. It, it was never meant to satisfy us. That's the reason that we can be free to be generous because we were never meant to have it all in this world. No, we, we have our inheritance. We have an incredible inheritance. We have an immersion an immeasurable inheritance. And the question is, do we believe God when he says that? Do we believe God when he says that? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for you in heaven. What an incredible statement. So we don't have to have it all in this world because we never were meant to have it all in this world and we're never going to have it all in this world. So we can be content with what we have and he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. But there's a day coming when those who have suffered with Christ will be glorified with Christ and will share in the riches of his glory. And therefore, verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now we, here are the sacrifices we offer. We do offer sacrifices, but not sacrifices of animals, and not sacrifices for the atonement for our sins. No, no. That sacrifice has been offered up once and for all by Jesus Christ himself. But the sacrifices we offer are sacrifices of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, and 
Do not neglect to do good. That's a sacrifice. Keep on doing good as defined by God for the sake of bearing witness to Jesus Christ and to share what you have. There it is. That's a sacrifice. But it's a happy sacrifice and a glad sacrifice because we're only sharing what God has already given to us. And it says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Those are the sacrifices that we make. Sacrifices of thanksgiving, not sacrifices of atonement, not sacrifices that seek to earn anything from God, but are sacrifices of thanksgiving for everything that God has given to us and done for us in Jesus Christ. Sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Well, we're going to close there. And if the Lord wills next week, we'll pick up at verse 17 and conclude our study of the letter to the Hebrews. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your word, which is alive to us like a two-edged sword by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that your, your word really will build us up in faith and give us that grace. Give us the power of your spirit, Lord, to live in accordance with your word through Jesus Christ, our great high priest at your right hand, in whose name we pray. Amen.